Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reverb Episode 4. Uh, with me is Alex Helberg. And that is Calvin Pollock. So on this week's episode, we're going to focus on a topic that has always been central to the study of rhetoric and the humanities more broadly, the topic of memory. Now, of course, when we say memory, we mean everything from being able to recall answers for a test, uh, how we think about profound or significant experiences that shape who we are, all the way to the processes by which societies and groups collectively remember events, people, and places. And now it's a difficult term to pin down in just one episode, so think of this as just an introduction to a larger theme that we'll be going back to again in future episodes. Yeah. Um, can I just stop you here, Alex? Yeah. What? Um, I'm sorry. I, f- I forgot. What are, uh, oh, no. What's this episode about oh, again? Oh, no. Don't even... Uh. What's going on? This is why. This help is, me out. Help me out here. This is why. This is why it's not a good idea to co-host podcasts with people who just you know. No, I forget. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, a, What's a, the podcast about? I I don't feel like I should have to tell you this. I feel like we we went over the notes before the before the show. This was this was well established. You should remember. I right? don't remember. I'm losing it here. <laughs> So today we interviewed two people uh, who have thought a great deal about public or collective memory in their work. Uh, The first is Taylor Rugg, a master's student at Carnegie Mellon, who does academic and creative work focusing on how we remember trauma. Uh, We talk about how representations of trauma can create empathy among people in society, and uh, we place a lot of emphasis on how veterans' perceptions of war and torture often contrast with that of a broader society. We'll also get to hear Taylor give a live reading of a creative piece that she wrote about her own personal memories of trauma later in the show. And we also had a conversation with Emily Ruby, a curator at the Heinz History Center Museum in Pittsburgh, who spoke with us about her work preserving local historical artifacts and touching on the ways that museums can affect our collective memory of places and time periods. We also touched on some of the difficulties that arise when individuals' memories of the past conflict with the truth of how things went. And just a quick trigger warning, in some parts of this episode we discuss depictions of traumatic actions and events, uh, such as torture, as well as the deaths of family members. Yeah, so now I remember where we're going. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad we finally got Calvin's memory in working order. All right, let's take it away. All right. All right, welcome everybody. I'm Alex Helberg, and I'm here in the studio with one of our editors, Audrey Strom. Hey, guys. And we're sitting down today with Taylor Rugg, an MA student in rhetoric here at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, Taylor's prior research has focused on identity representations of military service members in popular literature and the media, as well as through interviews with veterans themselves, and the rhetorical links between trauma and memory. She's also published creative work on the subject of remembering trauma, which we'll be introducing later in the show. Taylor, welcome to Reverb. Thank you. You make me sound so interesting in my bio. Well, you are, in, well, you are interesting. You are interesting to us. So. Um, so I thought we might just get started here by diving into uh, some of your research work, some of your academic uh, stuff. So could you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done on representations of trauma specifically? So why is this an important concept for us to understand as a society? And what kinds of, you know, what we might call trauma artifacts have you chosen to analyze and why? 
So like you said, my research uh, really focuses on the military. So my conceptualization of trauma in my research is really focusing on how that affects military service members and veterans, particularly because this is not a place where a lot of people are doing research, right? So it's not as simple as just saying it's it's post-traumatic stress disorder and that's that's it, let's call it a day. It's really more nuanced than that. And what I've, what I've uh, found in terms of how we approach that topic is that most service members are not getting help, right? So I think this is a dominant narrative that most people know, right? So veterans come home, they have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, they don't seek help, and you know some kind of event occurs, and that's kind of when we, as a society, become aware that this is an issue. The way that I became interested in it was through just some literature materials that really had nothing to do with uh, post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder or or trauma themselves. There was a book called Falling Man by Don DeLillo that is about 9-11. And uh, there's this concept called or- organic shrapnel, which just became embedded, no pun intended, for, <laughs> nice. <very good. laughs> um, for how I began thinking about how trauma affects our, our service members and veterans. So. Yeah. so so how does that concept get it brought up in DeLillo's Falling Man? Well, so he, he uses it like in a passing phrase um, in, in, this, in this text. So he says that that the organic shrapnel is what happens when a, when a suicide bomber explodes uh, with the bomb, that parts of that bomb and the suicide bomber's body become embedded in surrounding victims, right? So, Mm -hmm. and what they would find is that later down the line, these victims were going into, you know, medical treatment centers, um, seeing their doctors, and they had these strange bumps on their body, and they realized it's because they had fragments of not only the bomb, but other people's um, DNA embedded in them, you know, so it was, that's where the, you know, it's not just shrapnel, it's organic, right? You have these pieces of somebody else's person in you. So that's how he uses it in in Falling Man. And it brought to mind for me this really interesting link that uh, seems to have existed for a long time now between uh, what we think about in rhetoric, our sort of dominant metaphor for talking about memory, Mm. right? So um, I'm picking this up just a little section from um, uh, Kendall Phillips. He wrote a really good article a couple of years ago on the concept of of public remembrance. So he's drawing out a section of uh, Plato's Thetidus during the dialogue Socrates posits, uh, now I want to suppose for the sake of argument that we have in our souls a block of wax, larger in one person, smaller in another, and of purer wax in one case, dirtier in another. We may look upon it then as a gift of memory, the mother of the muses. We have impressions upon this of everything we wish to remember among the things we have seen or heard or thought of ourselves. We hold the wax under our perceptions and thoughts and take a stamp from them in the way in which we take the imprint of signet rings. Whatever is impressed upon the wax we remember and know so long as the image remains in the wax. Whatever is obliterated or cannot be impressed we forget and do not know. So there always has seemed to be this kind of implicit link between memory being a sort of like physical uh, part of us. Mm -hmm. We can draw connections between that all the way to, you know, phrases uh, in our language, things like, you know, if something traumatic happens to a person, we can say that they're scarred for life. Mm -hmm. We talk about young people as being very impressionable, or Mm -hmm. we can say that somebody important to us left a big impression on Mm -hmm. us. Or if somebody says something nasty to us, we can say, ooh, that left a mark. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I I think it's really interesting as, as you were reading that excerpt that, 
what fascinates me about trauma is that it can be physical and mental, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have these, you know, somebody left an impression on you or, or, you know, you're scarred for life. And that doesn't necessarily have to be something that was uh, physically done to your body, but you are embodying that trauma. And what's interesting in service members and veterans is that a lot of times this trauma can be physical initially, right? So you can have an injury that, you know, or an act of violence that occurred, and then later on that manifests again in this in this mental trauma, oftentimes uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so what I looked at was torture specifically and the way in which torture can be physical and mental, and yet it can have a mark that is, again, both physical and mental and continue on in that mental traumatic fashion. And so I think that that embodiment, that way in which we take trauma up on its significance is not only should we look at the first moment of, of impact, right, with trauma, but the way it continues on and transcends both from physical to mental and then perhaps the continuation of mental. What's especially interesting about looking at torture as that initial moment, so right, mm -hmm. if we think about this metaphor of organic shrapnel, which is really just fantastic, sad, and yes. deeply disturbing, but also a really great representation of how memory can be embodied. When we think about torture, torture is something that typically doesn't get, at least to my knowledge, the public doesn't tend to really get a sense or a true vision of mm -hmm. what happens during these interrogations. Exactly. Methods. So yeah. um, I also find it interesting the degree to which memory that is inflicted through mm. organic shrapnel or memory that is embodied and Im makes an impression can also affect the way that those things get proliferated and circulated mm, and yeah, almost distorting that mm -hmm. original bomb, right? The original suicide yeah. bomb, mm -hmm. the event through which we impress so as I was saying before, we don't often think about, we don't give a lot of thought to veteran trauma, right? Yeah. So a lot mm -hmm. of it is with that post-traumatic stress disorder. And then there's not a lot of understanding by the public because it's not a, it's something, it's a medical issue, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so we look to, uh, you know, mental health experts to really take up that issue. But I think it's interesting that you, you bring up this point of how uh, torture is often done in in silence yeah. um, right. right so this this project focused on a book called consequence yeah. and uh, Eric Fair is the author and he was in the army and then he becomes a uh, he, he leaves the army but he goes to Fallujah as a uh, interrogator and he, he was also at Abu Ghraib so he talks about his experience and he talks about these enhanced interrogation methods which are really they're, they're torture, right? And he kind of reconciles this notion of what he's doing, and he realizes that what he's what he's talking about in this book is not something that the public is really aware of. And you know, how do mm -hmm. you how do you publicly deal with that trauma, physically and mentally, when the people that you're talking to don't didn't know that that was even occurring? Yeah, yeah and that that's kind of the really fascinating thing too. Can you tell us a little bit more about Fair's book? I think there was kind of an interesting reception to it when it when it came out, right? Can you yeah, talk a little so, about that? so so Eric Fair he wrote, he writes this uh, this memoir. Preceding this memoir, he had written a couple of articles in the Washington Post and I believe also the New York Times. Those were received very differently um, <laughs> than, the, sure. than well the book. So he <laughs> he talks about so in those articles he basically confesses to having done some of this torture, I mean, to um, to detainees at Abu Ghraib and, and Fallujah. And many people 
would email him and and tell him basically that he, he should commit suicide that oh he God. you know his life is like if he's going to admit to these things that basically his life is not worth living wow and then his book is really interesting visually because when you open this book there are whole passages that are redacted and so visually there are whole paragraph there are words there are phrases sentences paragraphs and then whole pages that are blacked out wow and it is visually stunning in both a very beautiful and like terrifying way that because he had to go through i believe it's the cia but i could be wrong about that that had to approve of his text and so things are redacted that he couldn't have had published and so that but he left all that in there the spaces that they took information out and so it's a visually um, stunning book in the sense that the a lot of the feedback obviously you're going to have you know the same people who are like ah torture is bad and right. you know which is f- fair um, and he he acknowledges that and he's not trying to say that that's not the case but there's also a, a large response of people who are like what what else is in that <laughs> you know like yeah. what are we not allowed to know and he's trying to tell the truth or at least that's the that's the you know what he's portraying at least. You were, you were kind of saying, I, I first wanted to mention that it's so interesting that, yeah, he kept those redacted pages mm-hmm. in there because not only, you know, not only is that, I would say that that's kind of a a shout out to the fact that, you know, that we are being made to remember this event in yeah. a particular way. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are, there are actual material constraints on our right. remembrance of certain things yeah. because of information that we are allowed to know and information that we're not allowed to know. But in addition, I think that the sort of reception to, to Fair's works uh, speaks to this other concept that you talk about in your work, which is grievability. Mm-hmm. So this is involved more with the way that the public thinks about and remembers certain events or actions that people take. Yeah. Um, so you can, can you talk a little bit about what grievability means and how that applies to, yeah. to this case? So this is from Judith Butler, and I'll, in a very reductive way, um, she mm-hmm. basically says that grievability is, is this concept that states that there are grievable lives and or grievable deaths and livable lives. And so the way that I use that in my in my research largely is to is to say that um, based on my research and and kind of our the hegemonic discourse in our in our society the service members regardless of how you feel most of the time about the military whether or not you're, you know, pro or or against youth feel like they are they have livable lives and grievable mm-hmm. deaths, right? We don't want our Americans to to die, you know. And we see our enemies as not the same, right? Not to say that they necessarily don't have livable lives and they don't have grievable deaths, but we view it in a much lower way. Mm-hmm. And so what I what I propose in this research is that we have to reexamine that the way in which we think about grievability for our for our um, service members and for these you know detainees that torture because it it is so it's controversial it's inhumane in a lot of the ways in which they use it in uh, in these camps that it could affect the grievability of our uh, service members of our interrogators and the detainees so what I propose in in, uh, in my research is that it in fact can decrease the grievability of our service members making them making us view them as as less than what we would have before again not to say that they're not they don't have a grievable death it just is if you view it as a spectrum if you will Mm -hmm. Um, and then similarly for the detainees that they become more grievable which humanizes them in a way in which we often do not humanize the 
the quote unquote enemy in our in our conflicts, which I think problematizes our, you know, involvement overseas, which I think is a good thing in thinking about how can we be critical, but also how can we help our service members? Because if we're seeing that humanity and we're seeing that tension, then there's a good chance that our service members are also having to fight that tension while having to perform their job. Mm-hmm. And so that also contributes to this, to this idea of the trauma that they come home with, right? Not only do they have this physical organic shrapnel and this mental organic shrapnel from these actions that they um, that they did, and that's not to say they're not guilty of, you know, X, Y, Z, but now they've also, you know, been traumatized of the fact that they, you know, did this to a, a fellow human, you know, regardless mm-hmm. of you know, ethnicity and political stance and all that. When Fair's book came out and when, um, like, granted, some of the book was redacted, Mm -hmm. but there was still a story about an American military serviceman Mm -hmm. torturing somebody. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of claiming that that might decrease his grievability, so we might see his death as less grievable in his life less worth living, mm-hmm. something like that. And that's why people were, as you were saying, sending him death threats, at yeah. saying you should go commit suicide. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, and again, because I am not an expert in this field at all, and I don't remember, when, when did this book came out, come out? I want to say it was 2016, 2015? Yep, yeah, it was 2016. Yep, 2016 recently, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because I'm curious to know what the effects are of changing this degree mm-hmm. of grievability for yeah. this one person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on a public conception yeah. of the military. Because as you were saying, we have very preconceived notions mm-hmm. of our servicemen and women. Yeah. And I am indeed guilty of seeing the story of mm-hmm. one serviceman or woman yeah. hearing about advanced interrogation techniques, torture, mm-hmm. and becoming angry and yeah. uh, at the military writ large. Yeah. So I guess what are the effects then of circulating these narratives about um, torture or mm. things that might humanize the enemy and dehumanize or degrieve, whatever <laughs> yeah. you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. how does that affect or did it affect larger conceptions of our Mm -hmm. military servicemen and women yeah so i don't know you know it's been really it's been like two years since the since the book came out and i i haven't followed enough now in my more current research to know exactly how it's really you know if there's been an effect i would say that for abu Ghraib and fallujah the dominant narrative that the military at large put out was that the people performing this torture was that it was, you know, there were a few bad apples, Yeah. you know, it was, and, and I would assume that that's probably how largely this book was not dismissed, but how it was justified, right? That it was just, he's just another one of those few bad apples. And, and, and so, you know, like that can't break our, mm-hmm. our dominant narrative. My hope is that in the future, not for us to necessarily be like, oh, well, the you know service members are not grievable and that's that, right? But, right. but that we can change kind of the conversations that we have. And also, I think it is a, it's largely a conversation about that trauma. Like, yeah. what are we putting them through? And mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we help them after they come home? That's largely, my research as a whole focuses 
on that transition period, what happens when they come home. And so everything that I do is kind of with that end goal in mind of how do we make their lives better? How do we make yeah. that transition better? What do we, what services do they need? How do we, you know, if they've been doing these things, we, how do we reconcile that as a society, but also how do we help them, yeah. right? How do we help them reconcile that? Because they're also civilians, right? They're, they're citizens just like us. They just had a different job. So we have to, you know, kind of work that into our, our schema of how to help them. How to, how do we, what do we do? And that's, I think, what I appreciate most about, about your work uh, from what I've seen so far is that it is really focused on creating a sort of better discourse for us to talk, you know, yeah. about the real challenges that military service people face, mm-hmm. both, you know, when they go abroad and when they come back home. Mm-hmm. And hopefully at some point can challenge or, you know, help us rethink the way that we talk about things like uh, like torture, not as somebody like Donald Trump, not to bring him into every conversation here, but last January said, uh, you know, went on the record saying torture absolutely works. You know, that was kind of the official line out of the White House, and it's kind of remained the same since then. And so, you know, this changes our conception of how we talk about the topic, though, which is not just, you know, does it work? Does it actually lead to our safety? as a nation, but what does this actually do to the people who are involved in it? Um, You know, this is not just dehumanizing for the people that it's that torture or enhanced interrogation uh, is performed upon, but also the people who are performing it, which is a really important aspect. Exactly. So as part of this episode, Ryan Mitchell, who runs our Reverberations segment, wanted to get out into the community to find someone whose job it is to help maintain our collective memory of places and time periods. So he and I went to the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh to speak with Emily Ruby, a museum curator who collects artifacts and stories from people in the Pittsburgh community. She was generous enough to share some of her insights about how she thinks about history and remembrance in her work, as well as some of the stories that she's had a chance to collect. So my job, my title is curator. I do about 50% of my work is on exhibitions and putting those together, but the other 50% is bringing things into the collection. So if someone in the community calls the History Center and has something in their attic or a base of who, you know, wherever, or an institution is dissolving, it can be anything, and they want us to take the collection, I will go out and see what they have and then take notes and research and then present that to our collections committee. And so that's the archivists and the curators on staff, uh, and we talk about you know, what, what's being offered and, you know, what does it tell us about Western Pennsylvania history? Does it fill any gaps in our collection? What's the condition that it's in? Those types of things. Um, and then we make the decision and then I follow up. So it's really t- difficult because we cover every aspect of Western Pennsylvania <laughs> history, right? So, you know, there's things that will come in that represent maybe a really significant person, Sophie Maslow's collection or something like that, where that's, that's wonderful. But then there's things that are equally exciting to us that maybe aren't as significant as far as like this, you know, famous or influential person. But for example, a steel worker's uniform or clothing he wore into the mill every day, like that's so representative of this region, but it's not something that people kept 
So if you find a really good, even an image of someone in their clothing that they wore to work and then they happen for some reason to keep that clothing in a trunk somewhere, you know, these kind of like really wonderful stories that represent the region, you know, the things that people don't keep. Everyone offers you their wedding dress. I get calls, I would say, every week for wedding gowns, for refrigerators from the 50s that are still working, yeah. like these right. large appliances, things like that, you know, ringer washing machines. Mm-hmm. I, so they think, oh, this is old, you know, right. you'll want this, um, or everyone keeps the wedding dress. So yes, wonderful things. We take representations of those things, but then we have enough. And so, right. <laughs> you know, like, really, what are other things that you might have in your house? You know? And people sometimes aren't thinking like, oh, well, what did you do for work? Oh, oh, you're interested in that? Yeah, like, where did you work? What did you do? What did you take to work with you? You know, how did you, like, what were the tools of your trade? Things like that. A lot of people will come in to the History Center and see things. And then they'll think, oh, I have that. (laughs) Um, That's really interesting. A lot of times it's family members passing away. They're cleaning out a house. Those types of things. They see an exhibit coming up that they have something that they think might connect. So, for example, Apollo, we're hosting the Destination Moon exhibit in the fall and so I'm getting a lot of calls now from people that you know, I, I took pictures or I, was, <laughs> or I have this life magazine you know right, things like right. that that will spark people's interest in donating we knew we were going to have the Vatican exhibition and then I got a call from this professor at Slippery Rock a nursing professor and he had collected all of these habits of sisters like pre-Vatican II habits wow. And because the sister groups in Western Pennsylvania were so instrumental in healthcare and establishing healthcare in the region, so that was his connection to that. Uh, and he's like, I think I have the largest collection of pre-Vatican II habits like that are out there, and they're all Western Pennsylvania sisters. Uh, and would you want them? And we're like, yes, <laughs> we would. And he had some medical equipment and things from different hospitals, and so we had this gallery that it's now the Heinz exhibit but it was called the community gallery and so I we said hey why don't in conjunction with the Vatican we talk about what were the sisters doing here in our region um, how do they really influence healthcare? Um, so that was very specific to healthcare, and now that we have that collection in there we want it's an opportunity for us to reach out to the different communities because a lot of them are dissolving mm-hmm. and saying you know what else do you have uh, the documents education and the diff- other aspects that of their work um, in the region. So, In addition to her specific job duties, Emily talked to us about how her role as a collections curator has changed the way she looks at the world. She now sees things in terms of how they could be remembered in the future. It's interesting, if you look back through the collection of what, what has been collected through the years, it definitely reflects the values of that period. And so we do think about, I think about in 100 years, is someone going to look back on what we were collecting and think like, oh, you were missing like these big issues or these, why weren't you documenting this? So there's a little bit of that pressure, and there are so many stories to preserve. So we do have like certain curators that just document certain aspects. So Sam Black, for example, uh, really tries to tell the story of African Americans in Pittsburgh and preserve preserve those stories. But then I'm kind of the generalist. It's like, <laughs> you know whatever's coming down the pipeline. So I'm reacting a lot to people. It can be a little bit problematic because you're so busy reacting to people offering things. Sometimes you can't be proactive and say, okay, let's stop and think like what what's happening in the region today that in a hundred years if I don't go out there and get some of these things, maybe those stories won't 
won't be preserved or won't be told. So when an institution closes, uh, we try to get out there and talk to them, see what they mm -hmm. have. When there's a big protest, I've been trying to go out and field gather signs or things like that. Yeah. So because those are things that aren't gonna stick around. Like when someone goes home, they throw their sign in the garbage, you know. Yeah. And so I was looking at the signs instead of just appreciating. <laughs> I was appreciating them, but I was also like, yeah. what are ones that tell like a unique Pittsburgh? Right. kind of angle to yeah. the story so when I saw a good one but it had some kind of Pittsburgh theme to it I just went and gave them my card mm -hmm. and kind of explained hey listen would you call me afterwards uh, we'd love because obviously they're using the sign they're not going to give it to me right then <laughs> <laughs> um, like a covert counter right right <laughs> so in the time she spends sitting down and talking with people about their histories Emily also reflects on how people assign special meaning to particular memories and how this affects her role as a preserver of their stories. Mm -hmm. I enjoy listening to people's stories. Um, it's also really difficult if we have to say that we, we don't um, want something because, like you just said, it, these mean a lot to people's histories. These are their stories. Um, you'll sometimes spend hours with people you know, that are, that are talking and telling their stories. I was, a woman recently, she had called, and she's probably in her late 80s, and she had all these things from her husband's work, drafting tools and things like that, which we have a lot of, actually. And so, but that was a significant part of her history that she wanted to talk about, what she wanted to donate. In the end, as we were talking to her, it turns out she also worked with him. That's where they met. She wasn't thinking about her story at all. And then she started talking about her family history, and she had all this really interesting family stories, and she had all these things that actually told that story. And so we ended up going like this whole different way. And then she had to stop and say, I'm not sure. Like, I wasn't thinking about that. Like, I was, she assigned all this meaning to her husband's work. And not that it wasn't meaningful, but that's not, you know, the type of, like, we already have a really good representation of drafting tools or like the work he was trying to do. And instead, she had to like stop and rethink about her whole family history and what that meant. And so she called me recently, and she said, "You know, I've been thinking about it. And if I don't give this stuff to you, like my mother's memory will be gone." And I, I was really upset by the way she was eulogized and hurt when she died. And it, I just don't think, I don't think they did a good job. And maybe this is a way of kind of like rectifying that. What is we also wanted to know how Emily thinks about the significance of her work as a curator of histories and memories, and how the Heinz History Center can work both with and for the public. I mean, who else is doing the work if... Who else is preserving the history and telling the stories? I think it's important for the community to be involved in what's being preserved as well. So I th not just the curators going out and saying like this is what's important but there's a lot that the last conference I went to uh, there's this panel of curators talking about democratizing like the the whole field which was really interesting instead of us kind of being the interpreters of history like how do you get the community to actually interpret their own history and I think there could be a lot of cool public programs where we show people what we have in the collection. People don't know what we have here I mean the vast majority of our things are in storage and so there's a lot of sto potential stories to tell. Yeah. Finally, Emily shared with us some stories about how people sometimes misremember the past, which speaks to the often problematic nature of our memories. So there's been a few instances where some people have donated something and they have the story that goes with it that's been passed down in the family, and then when I start looking into it, it's like, it's not true. And that's really difficult because sometimes they have this whole built-up 
mythology of their family that's involved with the object and then you have to say like oh I don't actually think that that's what happened so it's it's really interesting like the one woman had told me uh, she had a whole story about her father-in-law who had died in a mill in a mill accident and when I looked into it I found his death certificate and he died of a, a stomach tumor and so I was like how do I should I tell her you know that this story isn't you know true that they've been telling I mean I did end up telling her but she said, huh, <laughs> well, maybe he had the tumor. She somehow tied it into the accident. Like, well, maybe he could have gotten in the accident because of the tumor or something like that. I, she somehow merged it. And I was like, yeah, I guess perhaps. <laughs> I did find one. I was, so I, this is not something that someone donated, but um, I was doing a talk on 1968 you know, being the 50th anniversary uh, the other day. So I was researching into the events of that year, and Monsignor Rice, who was a big activist priest at the time, had said in the paper in 68, like I found a quote from him that year saying, no riots are likely in Pittsburgh. Like, Pittsburgh's different. And I had used that in an article earlier when the exhibit had been here, and then I was recently researching all of that again for this presentation, and I found a quote from him 10 years later in 1978 where he's talking about the riots and he says, you know, we knew that these were going to come. Like, there was all this warning signs and things like that. And I was like, huh, but you said <laughs> at the time you didn't think so. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. So you're like that a just historical a minor. detective. <laughs> I wish. I could just do that all the time. That would be fun. One of the things that I found particularly interesting during that earlier conversation about the torturer and the tortury was you were saying so intimate you know mm -hmm. and, and that's a strange term and I and yeah. it's something that I appreciated as well because it helps us to again reframe this conversation that is so often framed in this very simplistic and yeah. harmful way and yeah. so if this is a good time to transition, I think that this idea of intimacy mm -hmm. in our experience of trauma and memory might be a good space to talk about your creative work. Yeah. You have recently published this work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, where the publication is from? Yeah, so at the fall of 2017, uh, published an essay called As a Star Moves Among Stars in the Night's Darkening which is a quote from the Iliad in the journal. That's the journal's name, not to be confused <laughs> with the journal. Yeah, the yeah, journal. The journal. Um, yeah. It's in their uh, fall issue 2017. I believe it's 41.7. And uh, it was a, yeah, it's a, I don't know, a really exciting uh, thing that I'm published now. Yeah. yeah. When, when you, when you <laughs> congratulations. It was, uh, it was interesting because when we were, when you were talking to us about it, Originally, I remember when you told me about this, you told me that the genre of this is called a lyric essay. Correct. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history of that genre and why you why you chose that as sort of a vehicle for what you wanted to say with this work? Yeah, so the the lyric essay is kind of a weird, it's a weird genre because, first of all, not many, not everybody knows what it is. In fact, probably not many people do. It kind of got its birthplace from my alma mater. So shouts out to Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Ooh. Geneva, New York. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, but so Deborah Tall was a fantastic author, essayist, and she she was a she did lyric essays, and so. We now have the Seneca Review, which is published at HWS, and they it's it's largely essays, um, and and so basically the lyric essay, the way that I like to describe it, and it is largely interpretive. I think the genre, it's kind of whatever you need it to be. I think, um, <laughs> and to a, to an extent, but I think of it as it's a very poetic approach to an essay. It is often personal experience, but it doesn't have to explicitly be that um so i took a course in the lyric essay in undergrad that's how i kind of got started that's where this essay originates from and we read essays that were entirely fiction but written in a such a poetic form and then there are there are more personal ones which is um more of what mine uh subscribes to i tend to gravitate towards lyric essays that have have a bit of intertextuality to them so like i have my personal narrative but then i also rely on some history, some literature, so it's a very um, mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Um, it's break, it's broken up into sections. So if you if you look at it on the publication site, there are large sections and small sections to kind of break up the text. That was borrowed from the style of Eula Biss. So she's a lyric essayist who I'm a huge fan of. Her essay called "The Pain Scale" is what originally inspired this um, essay, in which she pulls in all these threads about uh, about pain, but she uses the uh, pain scale of one through 10 and has all these different sections and they increase in um, intensity. It's right, beautiful. Right. Um, and so originally this essay was written with the 12-step program of for Alcoholics Anonymous. It has very much changed since then, so um, mm-hmm. that won't be in this essay. But the original version was 12, se- 12 sections, each labeled and titled with the um, responding or the coordinating step. Oh. Um, and so that is, uh, and again, it brought in this idea of personal narrative and, um, and other, you know, uh, pieces of news, of literature, and just trying to write that in a very poetic way. I got my my original creative writing backgrounds in poetry, so this is kind of my maturing out of that and <laughs> sure. uh, entering the essay world, I suppose. As a star moves among stars in the night's darkening, he fell in the dust and clutched the ground with his palm, the Iliad. Memories of my father's accident are silhouettes, Shadows transform in my closet, taking human shape. I blink, and they disappear. If you watch someone preparing to dive frame by frame, there is a moment where their arms are suspended perfectly, stretched to either side, they are facing forward, their legs together, shadow beneath, the outlines of their reflected bodies rippling. A memorial display in the vestibule is covered with photographs. The red of the bathrobe sticks out. My father is standing in front of the camera, one arm around his brother, the other outstretched. He had walked into a grocery store wearing only this and boxing gloves. He and his brother tried to convince people that he is a boxer. They left the store with a case of beer under each arm. I did not see his face before the dive, but I imagine he was smiling. The red of the water enrobed him. In Greek, Hector means to have or to hold. When I was six years old, my father went on a trip to an amusement park with my brother and I had to stay home because I wasn't tall enough to ride the roller coasters and they were chasing thrill. When they talked about the trip, I cried. After they returned home, I received a postcard in the mail with no postage on it. 
On the front, there were pictures of the tallest roller coasters I had ever seen, and when I flipped it over, my father's handwriting sprawled out his apologies that I couldn't join them. Hector, holding his crying son, whose fear of his father's helmet should have been a sign, lifted him up in prayer, hoping that one day people would say, he's a better man than his father. My father's uniform hangs in my closet. I run my hands along it. It has lost his shape. In 1926, when professional boxer Max Baer was still just 17 years old, he and some friends stole some wine from a lumberjack. The wine encouraged the boys to get louder until the lumberjack took notice. He realized the empty wine jugs on the ground were his, took off after the group. Baer was at the back as the boys began running. The lumberjack caught up to him. I took swim lessons for five years. Standing on the cold tile, waiting for permission to enter the water, the diving board scratching the bottoms of my feet. We practiced how to raise our arms above our head, grasping one hand with the other to create a flat surface with our palm. I was told not to hold my hands in high prayer. Instead, the flat surface of my hands would protect me if I hit the bottom of the pool. On the tiled floor, we practiced the movement, arms out, arms up, hands clasped, knees bent. We did this for weeks before we were allowed in the water. I never mastered the art of diving. I was too afraid of hitting my head, didn't trust my hands to protect me. Instead, I would break through the surface of the water horizontally, my skin red and hot, stinging. For three years after the accident, I dream of botching dives, jolted awake by the water knocking the wind out of me. Bear struck the lumberjack and watched him crumple to the ground. My mother said she could feel my father's presence. At the dinner table, during bedtime, in the car, a song would come on as she was driving and her forearms would tense, her knuckles whitening as she gripped the steering wheel and then she would take a breath and she would sigh. He's here. Is he? My father sent my mother a videotape while he was deployed. In the first frame, he is nowhere in sight and then he emerges from a hot tub water splashing as he beams at the camera. Polinaris stood at the front of Aeneas's ship as they sailed towards Italy, his expertise unquestioned as they traveled stormy waters. Neptune calmed the sea, but poor Price. The god of sleep drugged Polinaris. He fell into the water to his eventual death. The gods sacrificed him, one life lost to save many. I think of divers when I talk to God. I am 15 the first time I ever put on boxing gloves. I need help fastening the Velcro. For an hour, I push my arms away from my body, left hook, right hook, jab, power punch, the sound of my gloves hitting the focus mitt vibrates off the walls. For the first time in years, I am able to wake up without needing to catch my breath. 1930, Max Baer versus Frankie Campbell. In the fifth round, Baer forced Campbell against the ropes, landing punch after punch until the ropes were holding up Campbell's body and the referee intervened. Churches are too quiet. I am always angry. I struggle not to yell, even when I am praying. My father returns to New York with an honorable discharge. He never speaks about the war, just the sand, just the camels, just the hot tub they made on base, never the war. My mother said that this is all in God's plan. He surfaced just as Polinaris washed ashore after his plunge into the sea. Death takes what it wants, 
which part was God's plan? I go to church. While everyone bows their heads in prayer, I clasp my hands tightly and silently address the father I have lost. I would take an answer from either. When the lake is at its calmest, it can almost be a mirror. The water was brown. He dove in anyway. Before there was Polinaris, there was Elpinor, who was part of Odysseus's crew. While staying on Circe's island, Elpinor drunkenly climbed to the roof of the palace to sleep. It is a long way down as he falls to his death the next morning. Unnoticed, no burial awaits him. Elpinor, how art thou come to this dark coast? Ill fate and abundant wine. Every Veterans Day, my father would make a trip to my school dressed in full uniform. He brought a poster board of photos of the desert, the camels, the camp. We asked about the sand because it seemed to go on forever. There were no guns. There was no enemy. Only the desert and my father. Most of what I know about my father has come from my mother's lips. The thing about apologies is you can't say them for someone else. Bear stayed by Campbell's side during the wait for an ambulance. In mid-fight, Hector knew and cried out, My time has come! The battle continued. Hector's helmet gleamed beautifully. Death cut him short. Twelve hours before Campbell was pronounced dead, Bayer offered Campbell's wife Ellie a hand to shake, to hold. The Department of Veteran Affairs Alcohol and Drug Dependence Rehabilitation Program provides assistance to eligible alcohol and drug-dependent veterans. The program offers various forms of treatment, including detoxification, rehabilitation, and psychiatric care. Treatment programs are located in the VA medical centers and clinics. Before he dove into the water, my father set down his beer. My mother had asked him to leave. He begged to come home. She told him to get help. The last photograph that he and I took together was in the living room of the house I grew up in. It was taken before they told me he was leaving. We were both smiling. When Frankie Campbell was pronounced dead, Bear cried. He offered Ellie his hand. She held it, relaxed, fingers uncoiled. I'm awfully sorry. He said his fists were not meant to kill. Having killed Hector, Achilles keeps the Trojan warrior's corpse, but Priam would do anything to get his son's body back, so the gods grant him safe passage to the Achaean camp, and the old man faces iron-hearted Achilles. I have endured what no one on earth has ever done before. I put to my lips the hands of the man who killed my son. My mother used to tell me that saying I'm sorry only means something if I also mean I will not do whatever I'm apologizing for again. To repeat it means you were only acknowledging you were wrong. Bear almost quit boxing. But he does not quit. And neither do the images of Campbell flooding his dreams. Churches are silent. I stare at arms outstretched, legs together, head up, I clasp one hand over the other to protect myself if I hit bottom. Sometimes, I still wonder if he loved his shortcomings more than me. Bear looked healthy on the day he died. The first wave of pain in his chest subsided and the doctor laughed at his jokes until Bear was struck with a second attack. In his last minutes, he looked the doctor in the eye as his body failed him and like Hector recognizing the end was near, he said, Oh God, here I go. I wonder if, in his last minutes, 
My father glimpsed his own end as Hector and Bear did. Did he silently speak his own final words? Or was he too far gone? The last image I have of my father alive. He is standing on the edge of the dock facing forward, toes curling over the wooden planks, his legs straight and pressed together, arms outstretched on either side of him, palms facing out. Um, how you took an approach from a very, very personal experience of trauma. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very personal. And you're building in all of these threads in order to make it more accessible mm-hmm. while still retaining that very... And I think that's one of the things I love so much about fiction and mm-hmm. I love so much about specifically your essay is that it is very relatable. Yeah. Um, and it mimics some of those jarring and Mm -hmm. very physically felt emotions of trauma that I personally have not (laughs) experienced, right? So I really appreciate it for that reason, and all listeners should go read this. It's really really fantastic. And I wonder, though, to what extent can we or do we want others to feel or to resonate with our own personal traumas? Mm. Do you ever feel like there's a point for you when... I don't know, you're, you're writing about something really personal mm-hmm. to you, you know, the death of your father yeah. at a young age, and somebody comes up and says, I have felt the same thing, I know. When does that cross yeah. a line for you? <laughs> I think, um, well, I think part of this goes back to this idea of trauma as a whole and that we, the bottom line is that just to understand it, right? Like, not only understand our, our own experience with it, but how does it affect everybody and how do we best deal with it? So that's... Think and thinking about how it, you know, connecting this to my research, like mm-hmm. that's really, you know, the bottom line is just how do you help others that you don't know their story, that you don't understand, and can we reach them with this, with creative work, mm-hmm. you know? And I think there's a lot of organizations that do highlight veteran stories, veteran narratives to try to both, you know, it's therapeutic for them, obviously, yeah. or perhaps not obviously, but it is therapeutic for them. Uh, we hope it's obvious. We hope. But it also, I think, does encourage those who have access to that, and that's not always, you know, the case, but it is a it is an access point that, you know, we can finally start to understand or, or perhaps not understand, but see some of that trauma. I think for me, for this, I mean, you know, it's been 14 years, so it's not as... It's, it's something that, like, most people in my life, I think, know and something that I kind of, I think people learn about very quickly in, when, in their relationships with me because I'm not very, I'm not secretive about it. it you know, I think, mm-hmm. in fact, it helps people know who I am by knowing that this is my story. And so I think, you know, people have come up to me when I was writing poetry, when I was writing this piece that, like, you know, oh, I really related or, like, you know, that resonated with me and I'm like, great. (laughs) That is, I'm glad that you, because I love when I, when you find a text and you, even if it has nothing to do with your life, but, like, you're like, wow, the way you worded that, the way you captured that emotion, like, that, I get that, you know, and I think the point of this piece is not to, like, say, oh, it'll get better. It's just to capture that moment of, like, Mm -hmm. I've been there. And, like, regardless of whether you have been there, too, or someday you will be there, and, like, you, you look back on this and you're like, man, you know, I get that now. <laughs> I think it's all part of understanding the human experience. And so 
nobody's ever come up to me and said like, oh, I understand exactly what you meant on, you know, page four, bottom page. Like nobody's ever gone to that. Ex- I think that might make me uncomfortable. I'd be like, do right. you though? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, because you yeah. don't want, you don't want to, I mean, yeah, the point is not to create this like totalizing yeah. representation right. of like, like this. winning experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like this is what, this <laughs> right. is what, this is what this kind of trauma is. Right. It's just, um, I think it is a relatability thing though that. If it helps us communicate better, I think is the end goal. You know, if it helps, whether it's my story or veterans, if it helps you be able to talk to somebody, whether it's the person who experienced it or you're, you experience something and you can talk to somebody else or it's just to spark conversation. If, you know, somebody hears this or reads it and says, wow, and they go to talk to somebody else and they have a conversation about trauma and that somehow brings something about, like that's, I think, the main goal, right, is just to just to spark that productive conversation yeah absolutely and i think that's why it's so important right yeah it is it is about you know creating uh in your case both creating and highlighting representations Mm -hmm. of traumatic experiences or events that help us come to a sort of better understanding of what these things mean to people the point not being to to say like this is what it is but to say you know this is what it can be Mm -hmm. and help us kind of understand the different dimensions that go into that go into things like this so there was this other quote from uh, Kendall Phillips' article, which is really good, by the way. I'm yeah, actually just going to plug the... It's it. called it's called The Failure of Memory, Reflections on Rhetoric and Public Remembrance mm-hmm. uh, from the Western Journal of Communication uh, in 2010. Mm-hmm. He says, and he's following Aristotle when he says this, uh, rhetoric as an art of crafting public sentiment becomes the primary actor in establishing mechanisms of recollection in the process of caring for the representations of the past. Rhetorical appeals serve to frame memories within established cultural forms. Mm. Assuming the success of these connections, then the memory of some past event becomes stabilized, indeed reified into fixed forms that present themselves as necessary and true. Mm. Which I think is kind of, that's pointing us toward the the, the problem that you were identifying with representations of uh, military uh, servicemen and women and our sort of like other construction when we think about military action in other places. But what this, you know, what what things like your essay and and some of the work that you've been doing can help us to do is to kind of challenge what has become reified, what has become kind of a hardened category for how we think about certain things that that seem hard to challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. That are hard hard to touch. Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, I think my since my research focuses largely on on how do we change those narratives and like I, you know, I feel like. When, when I have these conversations, especially with, you know, like my mom, mm-hmm. she's like, well, how do we do? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I wish there was an easy answer. You can't just be like, okay, everybody, just don't do this and we'll be right. fine. Right. You know, like, take this step. Yeah, yeah. It's, One, two, three. Right. You know, right. like, let me right. just publish my list and, and pass it along on the street <laughs> and well, everybody will be in a better place. You know, right. it's so hard because we, when memory becomes involved, especially as a collective you you can't just like go ahead change it <laughs> like it doesn't work that way and i think that that's a big part of the issue is that even if you get a small group of people who are like yeah no i totally agree with what you're trying to say like that is such a small percentage how do you change the rest you know mm-hmm. and i still i don't know how do you you know right. is it is it through working with the military and like getting them to kind of you know change these change the way they portray their narrative? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, working with media and, you know, like on that side? Is it something else entirely? You know, I think there is no 
good answer for how we change those narratives. So. Yeah, well, I mean that that is kind of one of the uber questions yeah, of, of, of rhetoric course. and yeah. and yeah. Of, you know we, like the humanities in general. Yeah. yeah, how do we? Uh, yeah, how do we change the world? Right. Um, and it's and it's never an easy question no. to answer. I mean, rhetoric at least can point us towards some ways that we can establish community through yeah. through shared values or right. through um, or even just inviting difference. Yeah, yes, that's right. Through the sharing of narratives, yes, sometimes right. that is all we can do yeah. in, in certain in certain moments. Yeah, well, and that's right. I mean, one of my goals as I enter the workforce is definitely to put together communities that are of civilians and of veterans and like promote those conversations. I think if we can do that on a smaller scale, maybe it'll it'll kick off and, and be more widely done, you know, like yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, especially in higher education, I think that's a good place for it to start. So like just mm -hmm. promoting those conversations, getting them getting them going and having a deliberative space where they can say, well, this is my experience. And somebody can be like, well, but like, I don't understand, you know, mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. have that conversation. So, right. Or we can just give you a TV show and yes. you can, and you can, <laughs> yeah, just be broadcast into millions of homes. TV with and, Taylor. Yeah. Is that's that what right. it's called? <laughs> yep. That's your future show. <laughs> TV with Taylor. <laughs> Very unique. <laughs> Televising with Taylor. Televising with Taylor. <laughs> That's eventually what this podcast will evolve into. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're Taking we're, we're the announcing world. the launch of our of our next media arm. We're also moving into internet television now. Yeah. So, yep, yep. That's our exclusively that's our next, with Taylor. That's right. Exclusively with Taylor. She's going to stay yes. here and do this with us yep. forever. So, all of these are official pronouncements. They are legally binding. Yes. Uh, I have them on record now. Good. So. Sorry, Martine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much again to Taylor for, for joining us in the studio. Thank you to Audrey uh, for being on the interview as well. Um, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.